The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <coughs> For today's talk, <coughs> I'd like to rehabilitate a concept that has gotten a bad rap, and that's spiritual materialism. You've probably heard of the book, that's Cutting Through Mysteri Spiritual Materialism, which says it's a bad idea to come to the practice hoping you're going to gain something from it. And <clears throat> I don't think the Buddha would have written that book, um, specifically because there are passages in the canon where he talks about the treasures you gain from the practice. Um, and he compares them to the treasures, say, of a millionaire who has gold and silver and says, these treasures are much better much more reliable, much more solid, they're much less likely to be lost. We could say at the, turn, at the in present day they've been much, likely, much less likely to be destroyed by credit swap um, <laughs> problems. Uh, and he often talks in, in the language of investment and what you gain out of the practice. I mean, there will come a point where you have to let these things go, for sure. But before you let them go, you have to develop them. And John Lee, who was my teacher's teacher, made a comparison. He said, some people let go like paupers, other people let go like rich people. When you let go like a, a rich person, say you have a farm, and you've planted all the, the fields that you have, and you've got a crop that's just much more than you need, and you put it out in front, next to the highway, for anybody who wants to have some free, free tomatoes, free corn, whatever, and you let it go. And in letting it go, then other people can benefit. To let go like a pauper is to have the farm, but you don't plan anything, and you let go of the tomatoes and the corn before they even happen. Nobody benefits. Whereas with a, having developed these qualities, and even though you let them go, if you want to go out to the highway and take some of the corn and tomatoes yourself, they're there. But other people can have them as well. And so this wealth is good in two ways. One, as I said, it's more solid and more reliable. It really is yours. As opposed to saying, you look at your credit card, in your wallet, and it does have your name on it, but it also has the bank's name on it. And whose name do you think is more important? <laughs> Who gets to audit the other side? <laughs> With these, it, they really are yours. And then secondly, they, um, they're the kind of wealth that you can share. I mean, there's, a, there's many kinds of wealth in the world that create divisiveness. When, in other words, when one person gains, somebody else has to lose. But with these, the qualities of heart, basically, qualities of mind that you develop, you gain and also you have a lot to share with other people. You're not taking anything away from anyone else and you have more to share with them as you go through life. You think about the Buddha, he gained all those powers of concentration, all that discernment, and he didn't keep it to himself. He spent 45 years sharing it with others. But to have that, those qualities to share, he had to work on developing them and bringing them into being. And so the list of treasures that he gave the topic I'd like to talk today about today, and these are kind of, they are kind of a spiritual materialism, but they're a good kind, the kind that you work at developing, the kind that you can amass, and there's no greed in amassing them. It's actually a sign of initiative, it's a sign of right effort. And then when the com time comes when you have to let them go, okay, you let them go and everybody benefits. There's, you don't destroy them by letting them go, it's simply because they become available to everyone. Um, the list, in short, <coughs> is conviction, virtue, a sense of shame, a sense of compunction, generosity, learning, and discernment. <clears throat> I'll go through them one by one. 
First with conviction. Conviction basically here means you're convinced that the Buddha really was awakened. That what he awakened to, what really does, he awakened to it, a path to the end of suffering. And he's not some just some dude in India who came up with some interesting insights. He came up with you know insights that are really relevant to our lives and really should make us take a look, good hard look at our lives as to what is important, what's not. And essentially, what he awakened to was the power of our own actions. In other words, he, in terms of the content of his awakening, him he saw the power of your action to shape your life, not only this life but also into lives into the, into the future. And also he found a way that you can act so as to put an end to the cycle, so that you can find total liberation, total release. All this is a potential in human action. And this is a treasure, because if you believe in the power of your actions, you're going to be more, much more likely to act in skillful ways. You think about the long-term consequences of your actions. You think about your ability not just to be a good consumer in this society, but also to be someone who has, you know, actually has the power to shape your life in a way that you find noble, in a way that you find a good life to, to be. Um, and so when the possibility of an ultimate happiness is available, are you going to content yourself just with kind of everyday happiness, or are you, are you going to aspire to something higher? The Buddha is basically saying that this is a possibility, it's something that we all have the potential for. Now these are points that you have to take on as conviction. Conviction is one of those words that we tend to shy away from because we've all been burned by our experience with Western religion. But basically the Buddha is saying there are certain things about his teaching that you have to basically take as working hypotheses before you can prove them. And one of them is that your actions really do make a difference, that you have the choice to choose to do one thing and the other in the present. It's not some outside force acting through you. Secondly, there's no, it's not determined from the past that you have to experience one thing or another. You can change how you approach your experience in the present moment. And secondly, that these actions really do have long-term consequences. So if you believe these things, okay, then you are much more likely to be careful in your actions. You're going to benefit, the people around you will benefit as well. Also the potential that there really is a state of awareness that the Buddha calls beyond becoming. That's something you have to take on on faith, because you don't know it beforehand. We're all too often told that the Buddha wouldn't teach you anything that he couldn't prove to us, but there are many things he was very upfront about. He said, look, I can't prove this to you, but if you take it on as a working hypothesis, it's going to be good for you. And as a result, you find that your life really does benefit. He gives an analogy. I said, you can't know about awakening until you've experienced it. You can't really know where the Buddha was awakened until you've experienced awakening yourself. The analogy he gives is a, a wise elephant hunter who goes into the forest. He's looking for a big bull elephant because he needs a big bull elephant to pull some logs or whatever. And he finds some large footprints. But he doesn't immediately jump to the conclusion that he's found the footprints of a big bull elephant because there are dwarf females with big feet. Um, and they may, there's nothing wrong with females, but they're too small to do the work he wants. But he says this is a likely sign, so he follows the likely signs. Then he starts seeing scratch marks up in the trees. He doesn't assume, well, these must be the scratch marks of a bull elephant because there are tall females with tusks. Maybe they can make these scratch marks as well. It's fine he gets to a clearing, he says, there's the, right, there's the bull elephant. Okay, then you know that you found a bull elephant. In the same way, he says, we see all the marks of a Buddha in his teachings. And even as we start practicing, I mean, even the development of concentration, even the development of power, psychic powers, that's, those are footprints and scratch marks. 
So when you've had your own direct experience of the deathless, that you know, okay, this is true what the Buddha said. Because you see that was the power of your own actions that led you there. The fact that you stepped out of time and space when you have that experience proves that there really is something deathless that's not subject to time, the changes of time and space. And in stepping out and stepping back in, you realize that this process that you've been suffering through didn't start with your birth date. It's something that goes way, 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 way back. So you may not know the details of previous lifetimes, but you know, okay, this has been a long-term process going on. At that point, your conviction becomes confirmed, or as he says, your conviction is, becomes verified. Until you've reached that point, you take these things as working hypotheses. And it's, they're good things to believe. And if you don't believe in the power of your actions, you get careless. You start getting apathetic, and you begin to wonder, what's life all about anyhow? But if you realize, okay, the choices you make really are important, that's a form of wealth. And you want to protect that, that, that conviction as you go through life. Based on this conviction, then there's the principle of virtue. In other words, you realize that if you act in harmful ways, you're harming both yourself, in terms of the karmic consequences you have, and you're harming other people. It's interesting that when the Buddha talks about harming others, it's not so much killing or stealing from them, killing them or stealing from them. He says, if you actually get them to kill and steal, that's really bad for them. Because remember, they're, they're agents as well. And so you want to be very careful about what kind of behavior not only you do yourself, but also what kind of behavior you encourage in others, what kind of behavior you can condone. And you begin to see, as you follow the precepts, that your life, you're cleaning up your life. Um, I've, I've said many times, and no one's taken me up on it yet, there should be a, one of those courses, you know, have the course that says, you know, live your life as if you, this were your last year to live. You know, live it, for one year, assume that you really did believe in karma and rebirth. How would you live your life? What changes would you make? Would you believe that the precepts really were guarding you from unskillful behavior that really had to be avoided? How would, how would that change your life? And take it on as a test for a year to see what happens. Building on these two principles of um, conviction and virtue are the next two qualities, shame and compunction. Now, shame is another one of those words that's gotten a bad rap. But the Buddha is not call, talking about the kind of shame you say, I'm an awful person, I'm ashamed to show my face to other people. Actually, the type of shame he's talking about is a corollary to self-esteem. In other words, you realize there are certain kinds of behavior that are beneath me, that I would not want to do simply because I'm a better person than that. And so the opposite of shame that he's talking about here is not pride. The opposite of the shame he's talking about is the attitude, well, I can think of some ways that I would behave in unskillful ways, and I don't feel bad about it. That kind of apathy, that kind of callousness is the kind of the quality that he's saying is the obverse or the opposite of the kind of shame that he's trying to talk about, or he is talking about, which is that you would be ashamed to do something you know is really beneath you. And you get, there are certain types of behavior that you know, I could not do that under any circumstances. Or if I did, I would feel ashamed. That's a treasure. That protects you from a lot of things. Um, particularly when you're breaking the precepts. I heard an interview on the radio one time where a Vietnam vet was talking about how during the war he had killed this young um, Vietnamese girl in a village. And every night since then, she's been in his dreams. That's kept him from being able to sleep. And he said, if I had a million dollars to go back and undo that, I would spend a million dollars for that purpose. The problem is, even a million dollars can't do that. And so we realize, if you have the kind of shame that protects you from doing something unskillful, that's a treasure worth more than a million dollars. Because it prevents you from doing the kinds of things that you're later going to regret. Similar to shame is the quality of compunction. 
which in some cases is sometimes translated as a kind of fear. You think about, okay, if I did something harmful or I did something unskillful, there would be bad consequences down the line. I don't want to see those bad consequences. I'm going to abstain from that behavior. As the Buddha said, one of your signs of practical discernment is your ability to realize there are certain things you like to do, but you know they're going to be long-term bad consequences. You know how to talk yourself out of doing those. In other words, discernment here is is strategic and it's also practical. How do you psych yourself into wanting to avoid unskillful behavior that you like doing? And again, this is a treasure because it prevents you from doing things that you're later going to regret. So it is a, a very important and a very valuable kind of treasure. The other three kinds of treasure, again, generosity, learning, and discernment. With generosity, Basically, the Buddha is talking about here a freely given gift, the kind of gift you give, not because it's Christmas or because it's somebody's birthday or because you're going to a wedding, but you have something and you would like to share it with somebody else, simply out of the own, your own goodness of your heart. Now, that's a quality of heart that should be protected, that you should, main, you know, should, if you could put it in a bank vault, put it in a bank vault, keep it protected. Because that's when you realize that you are free to choose either to follow your greed or not follow your greed. In this particular case, you don't follow your greed. And that's a sense of freedom that comes from that. As an exercise one time, I tried to think back at what was a time when I, well, my first freely given gift that I can remember that wasn't for my cousin's birthday or my brother's birthday or whatever, Christmas. And what I could remember most clearly was that when we had moved to Kansas, up to that point we'd lived on a farm <coughs> on Long Island. We moved to Kansas and we lived in a little town. And this was the first time I'd ever lived in a place where you can actually hop on your bike and go down and there was a store within bicycle riding distance, and so I would ride down to it and I'd look around the store. And one day I saw an egg separator, you know, those little plastic things where you put the egg through and it catches the yolk and the white goes through. And I remembered all that time my mother would spend separating eggs back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and this was cheap enough for me to buy. And so I bought it and I gave it to her. And I think that was probably my first freely given gift. And years later, after she died, we were going through her things, and we found in her things the old egg separator. <laughs> um, it, she had made the mistake one time of putting it in a dishwasher and it kind of melted. <laughs> but she kept it anyhow. So I realized, okay, that meant as much to her as it meant to me that I'd given that. And so those are the kinds of, that's the kind of generosity the Buddha's talking about. Um, he's very careful to preserve the quality of freely given generosity. When King Basanity once asked him, where should a gift be given? The Buddha said, give where you feel inspired or you feel that the gift would be well used. In other words, there are no shoulds in generosity. It's something that you freely choose to do. And the Buddha tries to maintain that. Um, <clears throat> I understand Gil's policy here is no, no, dharma, don't, no dana talks when he gives a talk. And that's a good policy. The Buddha never gave dana talks. You know, you hear it's a 2,500-year-old tradition to give dana, and many people assume that it's a 2,500-year tradition to give dana talks, which is not the case. It's more like 40 years. Um, when the Buddha would talk about <laughs> when the Buddha would talk about generosity, he would talk mainly after people had given a gift already, in order to make them feel good about what they had given, rather than to see how much they could squeeze out of them. And so he was trying. He was very careful to preserve this sense of freedom around generosity, because what's important about generosity is not so much the gift that's given; it's the fact that you are erasing a barrier when you do that. When you sell something to somebody, in other words, it's a barrier up there, and the only thing that gets over the barrier is the money. 
When you give it, there's no barrier. Everybody becomes part of a family that way. And when you give the Dharma, it's given in that way. It's not given over a barrier, it's given freely. And it's this kind of generosity makes your mind more expansive and also makes your world more expansive. And John Lee's comment is that it, when, you, when you're a generous person, the whole world is your home. You know, the earth is your bat- mattress, the root of a tree is your pillow, the sky is your, is, your, is, your, is, your, is your ceiling. And you think about the mind attitude that you have. Everywhere you go, you feel at home because there are people you're connected with. If you've been generous to other people, you don't put up a wall around yourself. And the person who can't be generous is, has that wall and lives in a very narrow place. Um, even if it's guarded with barbed wire and security guards, it's still very, very narrow. Whereas when you're generous, your mind is a much larger space, and it's a much more pleasant mind to be in. Um, so this too is a treasure. Um, the treasure of learning. The Buddha here is talking about learning about the Dharma. It's good to have Dharma phrases that you've memorized, Dharma or Dharma lessons that you've learned that you can call to mind when you need them. When you think about the garbage that goes through our minds most of the time, it's good to replace that with something that's actually useful. Um, one of the monks at the monastery was telling me that back when he was a, an exchange student down in Mexico, learning Spanish, there was one evening when they had a party, and the Mexicans got together and they sang some Mexican folk songs, and they turned to the Americans and they said, oh, could you sing some American folk songs for us? And they looked at one another. And they came up with the, the song to Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and a few other commercial jingles. <laughs> and that's the stuff that was running through their heads. So it's good if you can replace that with some dharma, so that hopefully the dharma will come to you when you need it. Um, the year after my teacher passed away was a very difficult year in the monastery where I was staying. There was, there was some politics, some monks had been brought in to do some construction work at the monastery, and they decided that when the teacher, my teacher was gone, they were going to take over the place. And so I had to fight them off. They going to make sure that this would still, become, still stay as a meditation monastery. And in the course of the fight, these little phrases that John Fung had taught me would come to my mind. He said, oh, he said that at one point. And when people are looking down on you, when people hate you, he said one time, he said, you know, if people hate you, it makes life easier. You can come and go without asking permission of them. <laughs> and when you come back, you don't have to bring presents. <laughs> so when, when people have a bad opinion of you, sometimes it's a good thing. So. He's looking to put, okay, I'm going to be maligned for making this decision, but I know it's the right decision. I want to stick with it. And so it was that kind, that kind of memory that kept me going through all that. Um, and that was also the source of the book Awareness itself. I began to realize I better start writing things, these things down so I don't forget. And having written them down, then I started asking others, others of his students you know, things that had stuck with him over the years. And a lot of people had a lot of fun. Fund of memories of his Dharma teachings that they were still drawing on years later. And that, that's a treasure for you, because otherwise you find that you're, you know, especially in our, in our culture where we're being constantly bombarded with other messages that go against the principle of generosity, that go against the principle of virtue, that go against the principle of, you know, there is a, it is possible to find a deathless happiness inside. Um, you know, they're basically saying, no it isn't, so buy our product instead. You know? You have to learn how to counteract that with alternative messages. So it is good to sit down and memorize some Dharma lessons that you find really important, so you can keep it in mind. 
This is one of the reasons why at the monastery we have chants. We have the chance you know, to reflect on aging, illness, and death. We have the chance to reflect on what a true friend is. We have the chance to reflect on how the world is swept away and you know, what, what is really yours when everything else gets swept away. Those are the qualities of your mind. Those are good principles to keep in mind. And these are going to have kind of running, you know, running in the sort of the background noise of your mind to keep you going. That true is a treasure. Finally, there's the treasure of discernment. Um, basically, comes down to seeing where you're causing yourself unnecessary suffering. Um, the Buddha talks about basically two kinds of suffering in the world. One is the suffering in what you call the three characteristics, which is simply things that are inconstant are going to be stressful, and you will learn how to see them as not self. But there's also the suffering that's caused by craving. This is the suffering in the Four Noble Truths, and that's something you can do something about. Because you are actually cr actively creating that suffering by your clinging, by your ignorance, and through your craving. And if you learn how to focus on that problem, okay, then you're focusing on the right spot. So when you find yourself suffering, okay, if you remember this lesson, you look inside. What am I doing to add unnecessary suffering on top of this? Um, as for the three characteristics, you begin to use that to see things that you're attached to, these are maybe not worth it. But as John Lee says, and this goes, goes back to his original image of letting go like a rich person instead of a pauper, in order for that discernment to be really useful, so you have to fight against the three characteristics just to create a state of concentration that you can depend on. Because your discernment is not going to work if you don't have an alternative pleasure to the pleasures of the senses. So what you need is the pleasure of concentration. And when you're getting the mind concentrated, one, you're trying to create a mind, state of mind that's constant. Two, you're trying to create a state of mind that is easeful. Three, you're trying to get something that's under your control. Fights against the three characteristics. So you don't just come up and say, okay, today's concentration was bad. Well, that's inconstant and not self. You say, well, I've got to do something about this. This is why evaluation is part of the concentration. The Buddha's images of a good cook. The cook creates some food for his master. In this case, the master is a king, so that you have to be very careful about what you provide for the king. And you notice, what does the king take? What does he reach for? That's the kind of food that you're going to provide more of. In the same way with your mind, you have to evaluate. What's going to help my mind to settle down? If I have trouble staying with the breath, is it a problem with the breath? Is it a problem with the mind? Do I need to use bring in another meditation topic to get the mind in the right frame in order to settle down? This is all part of evaluation. This is all part of discernment. To figure out how can I get the mind to settle down. And then once you've used that discernment to create the concentration, that creates a sense of well-being that you can draw on when other things get difficult. Like when we have the next crash. Notice I didn't say if. <laughs> you need something inside to keep you going. You know, they, they talk, there's that book, Tribe, by Sebastian Junger, where he talks about people going through really difficult situations. And there are qualities of mind that they can draw on in order to help one another. That enable the, the, you know, natural disasters or wars. There's, certain, there's a certain quality of mind. And some societies are better at bringing that forth than, other, than others. Now, our society, which tends to be more and more atomized, and more and more, you know, the greed is good, is, is going to be not well prepared for disasters when they come. But if you start developing qualities of mind that you can depend on within yourself, then you find that you have this inner strength in order to be able to help yourself and help other people deal with the disasters, deal with the problems as they come up. And so these are good, you know, as I said, one of the, the advantages of these, this kind of wealth is that it really is yours. That it's something that, you know, 
outside disasters can't take away. And secondly, okay, when things happen, other people need the help. You've got the conviction, you've got the virtue, you've got the sh sense of shame and compunction. You've got the generosity, you've got the fund of Dharma knowledge. And you've got the discernment of how to use these things properly. As I said, there will come a point when your, your practice gets really advanced that you really do let it all go. But again, to, to let it go and to be let it go in a way that's beneficial, you want to have it to begin with. And so with the same with the concentration, the same with all these other qualities of mind. You work on developing them as a kind of wealth and you protect them the way you do protect wealth. Make sure that you, you know, put a protective layer around them so you don't let the values of society take them away. And that way you have the tomatoes to eat, you have the tomatoes to give to other people, rather than just having an empty basket out there in front of your house. So it's good to think about, okay, this, this is a good kind of spiritual materialism. These are the things you want to gain, these are the things you want to protect from your practice. And in trying to gain these things, it's not greed, it's heedfulness which, as the Buddha said, is the quality that underlies everything skillful that we do. So, so this has been kind of a somber Dharma talk, but I hope it's been a useful one. Do you have any questions? Where's the floating mic? Okay, uh, you talked about having a sense of shame and compunction. Mm -hmm. Don't you have to have some kind of balance? You balance that with something? Otherwise, you could get overwhelmed, right? Well, again, this, this is actually the corollary to self-esteem. Uh -huh. And you remind yourself, okay, I, I'm a good person. I don't want to harm anybody. That, that the desire to be a good person, that's your self-esteem. And we don't teach self-esteem the way they used to teach in California schools, you know. Every little kid in here is a rock star, you know. <laughs> you teach it by saying, okay, you do good things, you learn to be generous, you learn to be virtuous, and you take pride in your skills as you develop them. That's the kind of shame we're talking about. Okay? Once you've got a skill, I, there was this cook we had at the monastery whose mother had learned how to cook, this is back in Thailand, whose mother had learned how to cook from someone in the palace. And she was very rigorous in how she fixed her food. And she was trying to figure out all the time you know, what the monks like to eat. And she found out that there was one dish that I really liked to eat, but it was extremely simple. I mean, it's simple, you know, an idiot could put this dish together, but I really liked it. And so she would never fix it for me in front of anybody else. <laughs> if there was one day when I was the only monk eating in the monastery, okay, that's what we got. But she'd be ashamed to stoop to that dish. You know? <laughs> and so this is, but this is the kind of shame we're talking about, the shame that comes from having a skill. And not wanting to lower yourself to a lower standard. You've got high standards and you're, you have that sense of self-esteem that comes from having high standards. And so, for example, the Buddha says, you know, you should never feel unashamed about telling a deliberate lie. You, never, you should never feel a lack of shame for telling a deliberate lie. In other words, telling yourself, it was okay to do that, it was, it was, it was the moral thing to do, it was to you know, twist the truth here and there. 
He says, if you can do that, you can do anything. So he says, you know, the, the first requisite of being on the path is that you hold to the truth and that you would be ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. And so that's not the sense of debilitating shame that psychiatrists are hired to overcome. It's actually the sign of a person who has pride. I mean, he was talking to his son, who was a member of the noble warrior caste, and they had this sense of their pride, this sense of, okay, that kind of behavior would be beneath us. So that's, that's the good kind of shame and compunction. Question over here. Um, on that topic, I remember Gil saying, uh, uh, having a Dharma talk, and he was saying, when is it okay to lie? Mm -hmm. Or is it ever okay to lie? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, what if the Nazis are at your door and you've got a Jewish family hiding someplace in your house? Mm -hmm. I mean, are you going to tell them the truth? Oh, yeah, come on in. Mm -hmm. That family's no, right don't, here. Don't, come on. No, you don't tell me. Come on. You, if you've got Jews hiding in your house, you've got to figure out, okay, when the Nazis come, what am I going to say? So I don't break my precept. And you think about think about the implications. I mean, one, there's always this idea that if I know that if I tell this lie, someone's life is going to be saved. How often do you know if you know, people are going to believe your lie? One. Um, secondly, you've got Nazis and you've got Nazis. There's some who are Friday afternoon. It's late in the it's late in the day. They, if you can give them excuse not to search your house, they'll be happy to take it. And for those people, you say, I have nothing shameful in my house. Or you can say, if you want to check, come in and check. And usually, you, if you say that with enough conviction, they're going to say, oh, this, this, this is the person who's not hiding Jews. You didn't say you're not hiding Jews. But you don't have to tell them, hey, I've got them down in the basement and they're the third floor in the third room on the left. You, know, you don't tell them that. Now, the other problem is you've got Nazis who, no matter what you say, no matter how much you deny you have Jews in the house, they're going to check the house. In which case, if they find the Jews, then they're going to take the Jews in, they'll take you in. And if you had been lying to them, that they're going to use that when they torture you. And it's that kind of, that kind of psychological torture which is even worse than the, than, than, the, than the physical torture. So you've got to sort of think the whole thing through. Now one of the reasons I don't like that particular incident is how many times have you had Jews in your attic and Nazis at your door? <laughs> Because what happens is we tend to say, okay, there is this one exception. If there's that exception, then I'll find this exception, then I'll find that exception. And it kind of works its way down into you know, just sort of everyday kind of things. But if you've got something serious like that, I mean, you've got some like, secret you've got to keep, you've also got to keep, think your way through, how can I keep this secret without telling a lie? And this is the way that the, the precepts actually develop your discernment. You start thinking about thinking about other options. I mean, a more everyday example would be if you find that your sense of humor is based on exaggeration, which is a kind of lie that requires you. What, what would be a better, better way of expressing my humor? So it's not just exaggeration, and it's not just you know, divisive speech, and it's not idle chatter. That kind of raises the bar, and you become. You become a, you have a better sense of humor as a result. So this is why well, having the precepts and say, I'm going to stick with this. Now that means that raises the bar as to how am I going to deal with difficult situations.
There's a question over here. I found myself curious about you and your history mm-hmm. growing up in Long Island and Kansas and mm-hmm. um, being so, ve- so invested in the Dharma and dedicating your life and becoming a monk. I just wonder how that happened for you. Uh, you were at Oberlin or something, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I just wonder if you'd mind saying how you became a monk. Wow, okay. Um, <clears throat> there's the long version and the short version. <laughs> okay. The short version was when I was at Oberlin, um, one of the professors who taught Buddhism as a part of comparative religion arranged to have a Thai monk and a Zen monk come to the college to teach a whole month of meditation. And I was part of that project. And it was, it was during a difficult part of my life. My roommate had just tried to commit suicide, and I was kind of, I needed some sort of emotional support. And I found that the meditation really provided a lot of that. And the whole idea that having that as a skill, rather than just having prayer, which was what I'd been taught as a child, which is kind of, you know, kind of like the lottery, more hit or miss. I mean, this was an actual skill where I could actually get my mind into good shape. That, that fascinated me. And I wanted to learn more about that. So after I graduated, I got a fellowship to go to Thailand, which, which is kind of ironic because of the two monks. I really liked the Zen monk. <laughs> The Thai monk had no personality at all. Um, <laughs> and I would tell you what meditation method he taught. Um, but he, uh, so I went to Thailand and taught for two years and learned Thai and found a teacher that I liked, a John Fua. And first I thought, well, I'll just learn meditation from him and come back. And then when I came back, I began to realize that he had a skill and he had a level of happiness I had never seen anywhere here in this country. And so even though I had lots of uncertainty about whether I would survive as a monk or not, I'd say, I want to go back and see what I can do. So that's how I got there. <laughs> yeah, when I was teaching in New York one time, they mentioned the fact that I was born on the eastern end of Long Island. And this one woman came up afterwards and said, I'm just amazed that a little farm kid from Long Island would end up going to Thailand. And I kept thinking, farm kids are human beings too, you know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Question. Oh, okay. So you said something. Um, it's so great to meet you because I read some of your books, mm-hmm. and it's nice to have you in person. Um, you said something at the beginning about it's really good to um, consider infinity mm-hmm. every day, mm-hmm. and. I find considering infinity a little scary, mm-hmm. and I wonder if you could help <clears throat> help with that. Well, think about the night of the Buddha's awakening, and you can make parallels with your own practice. He started out, the first knowledge was his remember of his previous lives. And if you think you're bringing narratives to your, your meditation, think of all the narratives, if you could remember thousands and thousands of lives. Well, he didn't stop there. He said, is this pattern of coming back, is this just me or is it everybody? And if it's everybody, what... What determines how it happens? And it was in thinking about the whole universe, you know, dying and being reborn, dying and reborn, we began to see the pattern. Okay, it's through action. What is action based on? It's your intentions. Where are your intentions happening? They're happening right here, right now. 
And so from that infinite perspective, he came back and got centered on what the real issue was, which is, can I act in a way that's skillful enough to actually get out of this whole cycle that doesn't end? And so in that case, thinking of infinity actually put everything into perspective. And they brought that larger perspective back to his meditation. And thinking infinity also got him out of his narratives. So and if you're sitting down to meditate, you think about, okay, today so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that, and this is what he did, and I think it was really dumb and I really bad sad about it. And you just think of the larger perspective. And that puts the, the events of the day into, a, into their proper perspective. And then you say, okay, what's really important in my life? Kind of get out of the narrative of what, what's pressing right now, but the question of what's really important in my life. When you kind of clean out your mind that way, then you can focus in on the present moment and be focused in the right way. That's helpful. I was thinking of infinity in the kind of Stephen Hawking sort of way. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just think about the larger universe. and it, The whole thing is driven by action, people's choices. Is there actually anything in the suttas about uh, rebirth? And could you talk about psychic powers? Okay. Well, there's a lot in the suttas about rebirth. Um, the, however, the Buddha does not encourage people to try to figure out, you know, what was I an Egyptian princess in a previous lifetime? <laughs> or what exactly did I do to get here? It's just remember, okay, your actions will have consequences to carry on. He doesn't talk about what gets reborn, but he talks about it as a process and how it happens. And it's basically through craving and clinging. He says, your consciousness can survive without the body. In the same way that a fire can go from one house to another based on the wind, your consciousness can leave this body and go to another body, and it's based on craving and clinging. And that's something that's under your control. And if you had a something that got reborn, you wouldn't be responsible for it. But if it's a process that you see, I'm actually doing this right now, then, you, then the question is, can I do it skillfully? What are the levels of skill? So those are the kinds of things the Buddha talks about when he talks about rebirth. And as far as psychic powers, as the Buddha said, you know, one of the things that's imponderable is that the range of powers that someone can develop through concentration, through jhana practice. And if you, you try to figure out how does this happen, you just go crazy. But there are lots of things that people can do. Yesterday I gave a story. John Lee, who was my teacher's teacher, was famous for having a wide panoply of psychic powers. And I, gave one, I mentioned one of the stories, and this one guy just said, I don't understand. I don't understand. Because it just goes against his ideas of what could be possible. Fortunately, the only psychic power the Buddha says is useful, or really useful, is the one how to gain awakening. That's kind of a psychic power. But the others, you know, reading people's minds, that can be useful, but it can also be, you know, if, you're, if the wrong person has that power, and when people have that power, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the wisdom to use it well. Which is why people who have psychic powers but don't have morality, really scary to be around. So the Buddha teaches, okay, if, if this happens in your meditation, these are some of the ways you can use it. Like in his case, he saw, you know, seeing the process of rebirth, then the question is not figure out who did what to me in a previous lifetime so I can get back at them now. The question is, how do I get out of this process? Or if you can read people's minds, okay, how can I help this person? How can I use the teaching to get to this person? I'm, I'm personally convinced that my teacher was very quick at reading minds because he was also very effective. 
and sort of pointing out something that was an issue and explaining in a way that was helpful. But he, he, even then he said, you know, he would never talk about his powers. If you asked him directly point blank about his powers, he would give you a blank stare right back. It's none of your business. But he one time said that even if you can read other people's minds, you have to know that person to know what kind of approach to take, whether to you know, be more direct and be more indirect, or when to speak, when not to speak about a particular issue that that person is having. What time do we have to end? Hmm? 10.45. Can I tell one story? Okay. Now, living with a teacher who's, what I thought was able to read my mind, spent for the first couple of years I was there, I was very careful about what I thought. <laughs> if something would come up and I said, nah, I don't want him to see that. Um, until finally kind of the dam broke one night and I sat there meditating. All of a sudden these thoughts of lustful thoughts came up. And it was back and forth between, oh my gosh, he's going to read this, and he's going to see my mind, well, how can I face him tomorrow morning, and then some going back back. And so it was kind of back and forth, back and forth for a couple hours. It's amazing how long you can meditate when something like that's going on. Um, and so the next morning, one of my jobs after the meal was to clean his hut. And usually if I had something to talk to him about, I would go up while he was having his tea. He would have a cup of tea, and then he'd go into his room to meditate. And if I had something I wanted to talk to him about, I would go up while he was having his tea. If there was nothing to talk about, I would wait till he finished his tea, then I'd go up. And so I decided, I think today I'll wait until he finishes his tea. <laughs> and so we had a cup of tea, and they had another cup of tea. <laughs> and then he pulled a book out of the bookshelf to read. I said, he never does that. Okay, I've got to go up. So I went up, and as if he wasn't there, and I kind of walked, wiped down the floor and did everything I was supposed to do. <clears throat> And he turned to me and he said, that kind of meditation is a waste of time. <laughs> Which was the perfect thing to say. <laughs> not, not how horrible it was and how and, you know, degrading or everything it was, a waste of time. And that took a lot of the sting out of it. So that would be you know, a useful way of using your powers. So. But yeah, there's a lot about, in the, in the canon, there's a lot about the Buddhist psychic powers. And also about telling monks, don't show them off. Okay, well, thank you for your attention. It's time, oh, time to end. So, hope this has been helpful. <laughs>